This is KCBX, Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. Today, we'll hear about a new cookbook called A Taste of Pete's Southside. We had to break those things down from a pot of enchilada sauce that had 400 servings in it to enchilada sauce for eight people. Also, we'll meet Mickey Gilman of the Central Coast Dragon Boat Association. Our mission is dedicated to providing dragon boating programs for cancer survivors and any person affected by cancer. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, September 19th, 2022. I'm Carol Tangerman. My guest today is author, historian, and restaurateur Pete Kelly. And the name may sound familiar from Pete's Seaside in Avila Beach from around 1977 to 1988. And then Pete Kelly owned Pete's Southside that was in Railroad Square and Pete's Pierside, Avila Beach. And what you might not know, in 2013, Pete co-wrote Avila Beach part of the uh, Images of America series. In 2016, he wrote a book of his travels called The Long Road South, Vagabond Diaries, 1971-72. Then in 2020, he published the local history book, The Quick and the Dead, Resistance, Banditry, and Vigilance, Revisited on the Central Coast. And what I have right here, I have Pete Kelly's latest book, and it's a cookbook, and it's called a Taste of Pete's Southside Cafe, San Luis Obispo. Pete, welcome to well, Issues thank and you, Ideas. Carol. It's good to have you here. It's good to be here. I was very excited when I heard you had a cookbook, being one of those many people who spent a lot of time at Pete's Southside. Well, thank you. And uh, people would always ask me for recipes. And so mm-hmm. I'd go, well, you're going to have to buy my cookbook. But I didn't have a cookbook. Yes. And then finally I said, well, if we don't do a cookbook, all our customers and ourselves will all be gone. Pat Elkins, my kitchen manager from Pete's in San Luis, and I wrote this book. It's good. I've already sampled some recipes. Now, you have some history with KCBX. Oh, yeah, from the very beginning. When KCBX started, I think we started sponsoring things, and we would give away things on uh, Pledge Week sponsored the Evening Blues with Bill Kiley. And once I moved to San Luis Obispo, we started doing the annual brunch for the people that pledged a dollar a day. Then I cooked at the very first Live Oak, which was at Biddle Park in Arroyo Grande. And then I had a food booth built and started serving food at Live Oak in Santa Barbara. That was really fun. And then one time a volunteer said, could you expand your menu? And I said, do I look like a carnival worker to you? <laughs> <laughs> that was the end of that, right? That was the end that of that, it. yeah. Oh, gosh. Frank Lanzone, uh, you know, general manager here, he says that he was first here from the Bay Area, I think. Steve Burrell took him to your first place in Avila. Right. And he said that, that you and Steve were yelling at each other and that there were a bunch of local surfers eating and a bunch of business people at a table. And he just thought, Wow. 
Yeah, it was pretty uh, amazing in those days with Barbara by the Sea and Pete's Seaside. Really different. Old Avila. And in in your restaurant, Pete's Southside, I feel like you had one of those wonderful pictures, like someone had taken a panorama of all the people. Right, that was called Avila Wake, and it was done by Mike Monahan. He did this before computers, so he took actually 5,000 pictures of the sidewalk and front street and scissored them all together, and that became Avila Awake. Yeah, so I have that at the CSD office in Avila right now, and we do copies of that for people and then use the money to fund our history project we have going in Avila. Great. Basically, that's Front Street, 1980. Yeah, very different than today. Um, We're going to get to the cookbook, but I have to start first with The Long Road South, The Vagabond Diaries, you and a guy named Steve. Steve Slaughter, local electrician. Yeah, basically just went south and you jumped onto trains, you ate where you could, sometimes you worked for food. The history, the history that I learned about Central and South America in that book was fascinating. But at the same time, it was such a great road trip. I mean, I lived vicariously, you know, through your journey. Yeah, I think that's really a good book. I mean, people read that and tell me, God, I loved that book. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's hard to get it out there. I ordered 500 copies self-published. And after I broke even, which I never even expected to do, then my motivation for selling books kind of waned as I went into other books. But uh, that book still sells. And see, the only place you can get it is basically from me. Oh, you don't want to put Peggy it in some... Peggy was selling it at her, at her photo shop. Right. I don't know if she's out of it. And I believe they have copies of the History Center. But mainly what they're selling is the quick and the dead. Which is also fun. Yeah, it is. Crazy but that's stuff. a documented history. That's very, very important to this county. It kind of sheds light on that committee of vigilance that hung everybody in Mission Plaza. Yeah, know? those aren't history stories that I had ever heard of before. Those so. aren't history stories they want you to hear of. We're going to get back to the cookbook, but I'm just going to read just a a little bit here, and this is from The Long Road South, Vagabond Diaries. This is in your epilogue. Upon returning home, after almost two years pursuing the fine art of goofing off, reality raised its ugly head, and my travel companions and I all had to find work. Having been influenced by Pablo Neruda's Towards the Splendid City, as well as by other writings and experiences, I chose to work with my hands, so I became a cook. I had become accustomed to fresh local food and fish, and often I was able to watch and talk with the cooks as they did their thing. This kind of experience wasn't really available in the States at that time, and I fantasized about recreating a place like that at home. That happened. Yeah. And so you started in Avila. I started in Avila, right. In, what, 1977? Actually, my first cooking job was in Avila in 73 at the Old Port Inn. That's where you were washing dishes? I started out washing dishes, right. And the next day I came in and they made me a cook. (laughs) Yeah, it didn't take long, I guess. No. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, a lot of us spent a lot of time, I will say, at Pete's Southside Cafe. And the tables, I remember, they were packed real tightly. And it was noisy and delicious. And I think a lot of people share those same memories. Yeah, they do. And doing this book is really fun because 
I've run into a lot of my former customers and former employees, and we've had a lot of fun reminiscing. Well, the pictures in here are fun, too. I actually cooked some of the recipes out of your cookbook. I made the green enchilada sauce. I made the plantains. We, not, I I had help with the plantains, um, the tostones. The tostones. Yes, tostones. The red sauce, the gazpacho. I made shrimp enchiladas and your black beans and rice and shared them with friends. A couple of people even said, oh my gosh, this takes me back. Yeah. Well, that's great. And it's, you know, we had to break those things down from a pot of enchilada sauce that had 400 servings in it to enchilada sauce for eight people, you know. So there was a lot of math involved in it. But it's really good when people tried it and it turns out good because a lot of times, you know, I didn't ever write down a lot of this stuff and either Pat and we just pulled it out of our hat and it turned out really good. Did any ingredients have to go by the wayside? Cooking for a home kitchen, was it like, oh, we can't use that because people just don't buy that? Or did you keep the recipes authentic to the restaurant piece? Yeah, they were authentic to the restaurant. When I first started in Avila, we had to put up a sign saying, we serve black beans. Because people would go, what's this, this black thing on my plate? Because no one was serving them. Of course, now everybody serves black beans. Yeah. That was the same with putting cilantro in a salad. We would put cilantro in salads and people wouldn't know what that taste was. And ceviche fish tacos, someone did an article in the paper saying I served the first fish taco in Central California. So it's really funny because now you go to any restaurant in the world and you can get black beans, fish taco, and ceviche. But at the time, I was the only one doing that. They were doing it in Guatemala, but... (laughs) Yeah, it was really different to have that here. So there are different pictures throughout the book. A picture of, you know, a bunch of surfers that were some of your first customers. Yeah, my first customers in Avila were the local surfers. You know, Miss Barbara said, paint the inside pink. And I did it because she was my landlady, but it turned out that's really a good background color for all the stuff we hung on the wall. We hung a lot of Caribbean stuff on the wall, so I think some of the Avila locals thought we were hippie voodoo people. The surfers recognized what we were doing right away, and the Avila local surfers were my best and first customers. Maybe they had done some traveling. They'd done, had done some traveling. And chasing waves further yeah. south. That was pretty cool because I was a surfer myself. And when I wasn't working, I would like to be in the ocean. Yeah, it worked out perfect. If you're just joining us, this is Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio. I'm Carol Tangerman. My guest today is Pete Kelly from Pete's Seaside in Avila Beach, Pete's Southside in Railroad Square, Pierside in Avila Beach. And Pete has come up with a cookbook that he says he's always talked about doing, and I think a lot of people will be happy that it is finally out. Yes, ma'am. How are you getting the word out about your cookbook? Well, only on Facebook and word of mouth. Basically, that's been it. And we ordered 300 to start, and I think right now we're down to less than 30. Mm -hmm. So basically, it was just all word of mouth, Is it a silly question to ask why you don't approach the local bookshops? Well, if we do a second printing, we will. But on the first printing, we wanted to sell it 
for the $25. That way we could make our printing costs, our formatting costs, all that stuff. And then when you put it in all the local bookstores, they get their cut. So instead of making $25 a book, you make maybe 12 Okay. So that's the reason. Now, we have to decide because they're going to go fast what's left. And we're going to have to decide whether we're going to do another round of books by Christmas or something. I know like on the Long Road South, I ordered 500 books not knowing how I was going to sell them or anything. And I probably got 200 left. So you got to be careful on how many books you order. Do they have any copies in the local libraries? I'm not sure if they do or not. I should put some in there. Getting back to the cookbook, what I noticed is a lot of the ingredients, feel like a lot of the local ingredients that a lot of us use in cooking all the time, the olive oil, the lemon juice, the cilantro, onion, cumin, or do you say cumin? You can say cumino, you can say cumin, you can say cumin. Is that intentional when you make a cookbook so people can access the ingredients, or is that pretty much the the way these recipes are always cooked? That's the way we always cooked them. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think in there it's talking about how I came up with a Caribbean dinner, which is a really funny story. Tell the story. Okay, well, in Punta Gorda in Belize, there's a ferry boat that goes to Guatemala. So I was sitting in this little village at the time. I hear it's changed. This is 50 years ago. And it was just a, you know, it was a British colony, so... Out around town, there were Hindu people growing rice. In the center of town, it was all Caribbean people, Afro-Indian people that were the shop owners. And they just had these little wooden houses on pilings, and it was very neat and wonderful. And I was walking around, and I saw a hand-painted sign that said, Mon Mon's Five Star Cafe visited by Duncan Hines. And so I went, well, I'm going to eat there. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I go up, and there's this big Carib guy cutting up a snapper with a machete. And I, you must be Mon Mon, yeah, and I want to eat here. Well, come back at 5, and you'll have dinner. So I came back. It was just me and Mon Mon. His dining room sat four, and uh, he goes – you're going to travel all over the world, but you're never going to eat food as good as Mon Mon's. And so I did, and it was true, but he did black beans, rice, a salad made out of not lettuce but cabbage, plantains, and fish. And so I called that a Caribbean dinner and put it on the menu. And it ended up on the menu as like, A poor man's dinner almost. In other words, you could get a complete dinner, but at the time it was really reasonable. So you got, you know, the whole color palette in that Caribbean dinner. So that was a pretty funny. But I don't know if I used the same thing that Mon Mon used. But anyway. maybe... Maybe part of, um, like you say, a poor man's meal or but Maybe that has, I don't know, more to do with just using what's local than duplicating exactly... Yeah. What you found there. And that's what I was doing. I wasn't really duplicating. Yeah, yeah. And you had all that fresh fish. Oh, yeah. And it was a lot different in those days. At my cafe in Avila, 
I could get a 10-pound bag of rock cod fillets, local fresh, which people call snapper, but it's not. It's rock cod. And for 80 cents a pound, so for 8 bucks, I would get a 10-pound bag of fish. Now, first of all, you can't get local fish that fresh. And if you could, it would be at least $8 a pound. So the price has gone up, you know, tenfold. Well, and you probably went through that fish at the restaurants, too. Oh, yeah, fast. Yes. I worked at the Old Port, and their wholesale fish company was supplying my fish, so I knew everybody there. So when I called up to order fish, that was a priority, and they would just run it to Avila, Mm. which really worked out well. If you're just joining us, this is Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio. I'm Carol Tangeman. My guest today is Pete Kelly from Pete's Seaside in Avila Beach, Pete's Southside in Railroad Square, Pierside in Avila Beach. And Pete has come up with a cookbook. Looking at the recipes in the book, some of them are very authentic. Like here's one for at the menudo where you say... um, one pound of cow's feet, washed. Right. Yep. That menudo was definitely the real thing. Yeah. What's your favorite? Do you have a favorite recipe in here? I know that's hard. It's like, you know, asking a mom to choose between her kids. My favorite, I don't know if it translates well to a home kitchen. It's probably tougher. But I like the mariscata, and then I like the gumbo. And we would win at Mardi Gras. I you know, there saw was always this. a gumbo cook-off. Yeah. Pat cooked some of the best gumbo I've ever eaten. Mm. And, of course, the mariscata was just to die for. But, you know, there's a lot in there. Besides just recipes, there's good advice, I think. Well, in stories, too. Right. You and Pat tell good stories. You each had an interesting background, and he was your chef. What can you tell us real quickly about Pat, Pat Elkins? Well, he came from Dos Palos in the San Joaquin Valley. He moved to the coast, and I was kitchen manager when Tortilla Flats first opened, and I hired Pat. And then he went on to be the chef at Jane Brolin's Cafe she had in San Luis for a while. I forget the name. It was on the creek, right, on Broad Street. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. And then she, he started a restaurant in Cayucas, Reina del Mar. And that is where that famous smoked fish place was years later. Where the owner just passed away, and it was a famous smoked fish place. Well, that's where Pat first started out. This cookbook itself felt like, well, it felt like a history book from an era that a lot of us remember. The picture of Miss Barbara looks like Finney Smith took that picture. You know, she and Finney Smith were both characters at Avila Beach at that time. Yeah, that's true. It's really a a nice book. It has a spiral cover. Are you thinking of doing a hardbound? Well, you know... Joni Hunt, who is our formatter, she said, oh, bind it because pages stay open. You know these cookbooks that you have to buy a plastic stand to stick them in? The front, if you spill enchilada sauce on it, you can wipe it off with a towel. It's convenient. Yeah, it's convenient, and it's usable, you know, rather than a cookbook sitting on the shelf. Yeah. Yeah, so that was why it's bound and why it's that way. Do you think you're going to have some available for Christmas? Well, if we do another reprinting, my email is Pedro Kelly, that's K E L L E Y, at gmail.com.
Well, Pete Kelly, this has been, it's been so fun to talk to you about well, this, you, this book. I hope you have a second printing. Thank you. I'm Carol Tangeman, and my guest, Pete Kelly, on Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio. And now, the nonprofit story. This is Dr. Consuelo Mute, your host. I'm so excited today to have Mickey Gilman with me. She is the president of the Board of Directors for Central Coast Dragon Boat Association. Mickey, welcome to the nonprofit story. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. What is the Central Coast Dragon Boat Association? <laughs> We're a public benefit nonprofit organization, 501c3. And our mission is dedicated to providing dragon boating programs and related exercise and support programs for cancer survivors and any person affected by cancer. And we call those people supporters. Mm -hmm. Supporters include any person whose life has been affected by a cancer diagnosis of a family member or friend. And we welcome everyone to participate on our dragon boat teams. So when you say now, Dragon boating, and it's for cancer survivors and supporters. What in the world is dragon boating, and how does that relate to survivors and others? Well, it's an excellent exercise, especially for the upper body. It's very helpful for anyone who might have um, lymphedema, which is an ailment that occurs sometimes when um, lymph nodes are removed, which they almost always are in a breast cancer surgery. Mm -hmm. um, dragon boating itself, the dragon boat is a 40-foot long canoe. It has 10 benches with uh, two people per bench. So we have a capacity of 20 uh, paddlers at any one time. And uh, we always need a steers person and a drummer. Uh, well, we don't always need a drummer, but mm -hmm. we in races, we need a drummer. Where are you located? Where are the boats? We're located in Morrill Bay um, at Subsea Tours. They have very generously allowed us to um, keep our boats there, and they take good care of them when we're not able to. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is at the bottom of Pacific Street, so very near the corner of Pacific Street and the Embarcadero. Mm -hmm. How did they? How did you come up with this idea of using dragon boating as a way to assist people? Well, um, it's been an ancient tradition uh, dating back to 2,500 years. And but more recently, there was a doctor in um, Canada who did a study to determine whether it was helpful mm. um, in either preventing or improving um, people who were having, who were experiencing lymphedema. Mm -hmm. And um, I think in a lot of cases it does help. I know that there are individuals on our team who do have some lymphedema and who tell me that um, the dragon boating helps them a lot. Mm -hmm. How long have you been around? Oh, it, the team, um, Central Coast Survivors, was founded in 2007 by mm -hmm. a lymphedema specialist, Leslie Keith, and some cancer survivors. And um, we were under the umbrella of other um, 501c3 organizations, first one and then another. And then when 
the second one disbanded, we realized that it would be of our, to our benefit to form our own um, nonprofit, so we wouldn't have to keep changing them, mm-hmm. and uh, we could we could have our own rules. And so we did that in 2014, mm-hmm. and so that's eight years. How does this all work? How do people find out about you, and how do how are they able to become a participant with you? Well, they find out about us either through word of mouth or from the doctor's offices. Mm-hmm. Most of the oncologists in town, uh, in the county, know about us. And other doctors, um, the Hearst Cancer Resource Center uh, is a resource that knows about us. And word of mouth. And um, we have a website, and it's um, ccdba.org. And I encourage everybody to go look at it because it's just a wealth of information about dragon boating and um, has some pictures of our beautiful brand new boats. They're wonderful. They are beautiful. I know. And looking at that website, you could stay there a long time. You also have a wonderful two-minute video there showing the dragon boating in Morro Bay as well as uh, the work with your breast cancer prevention fund Mm -hmm. at Dignity Health. Mm -hmm. We have... um, that's okay. Oh, um, if somebody's interested in coming out to try dragon boating, right. they should go to the website, and uh, there are a bunch of forms that they need to fill out. There's a waiver, and also um, s- some information about COVID uh, protections and um, so on. So they can do that. The first time they try, it's free. Uh, after that, they can try it. They can continue as a guest for ten dollars each time, um, and after about six times, we want them to join to mm-hmm. become a registered paddler and and pay. There's an annual fee, and um, it's one hundred and twenty-five dollars a year for um, survivors and. $175 a year for supporters. So not only can you get involved with this wonderful sport, but you can also be helping an organization that helps cancer survivors. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. So tell us more about what you do. I know that you have been involved in some races before. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, we we have um, two distinct groups with a lot of back and forth. Um uh, one group of paddlers are recreational, and they mostly meet on Monday mornings, and there's also a Saturday morning practice. Um, another group, are um, we have race practices and people who like to race in festivals. And so the, the two trainings a week that are more geared towards racing are Thursday night and early Saturday morning. And those... Um, are more rigorous. Uh, It's the same technique, the same stroke, um, but it's more of a workout, I would say, although the recreational paddlers get a nice workout too. That sounds wonderful. If you are just joining us, this is The Nonprofit Story on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Consuelo Mukes, and I'm talking with Mickey Gilman. She is the board president of the Central Coast Dragon Boat Association. Mickey, it sounds like there's a really great schedule for people to do this on a regular basis as an exercise. Yes, there is. The, we have um, practices Monday mornings, um, Tuesday evenings, Thursday evenings, 
um, Friday mornings is, is a practice that's more geared to people who are learning how to steer. And then Saturday morning, we have two practices. And um, I wanted to talk about steering mm-hmm. a little bit. Uh, we can't go anywhere without a steer- steers person. Mm-hmm. So it's really important that we have some good steers pe- people. So we offer training in how to steer a dragon boat. And there's a land um, component to that, um, kind of a classroom type of thing. We do that on Zoom. And then there's the practicum where they uh, are on the dragon boat and take turns uh, with others, also learning or or a mentor uh, steering. And this little program has been very effective mm-hmm. in turning out some really good steers people. Is there an age limit? No. Uh, well, it's for adults. Our, our organization is for adults. Um, and they're if um if somebody under the age of 18 wants to try it they have to have their parents approval and so on um but there's no upper age limit and we have several paddlers who are in their 80s we have several in our 70s 60s and 50s i think we have one or two in their 40s and a couple in their 30s um and i think the reason why it tends to be an older group is because um, it takes a lot of time, and younger younger people are most likely working and have children in their homes and so on, so that that uh, they don't necessarily have the luxury to devote that kind of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're certainly welcome, and um, we we would definitely welcome younger people. Mm -hmm. I think that would be exciting, you know, to get involved with this. So I think if I'm correct, you've had some races, some professional races, even races maybe overseas Mm -hmm. and as well as in California. Yes. At the, actually at the moment, uh, we're gearing up for an international um, festival in New Zealand that is specific to breast cancer survivors. Mm -hmm. They have this uh, once every two two or so years, but it totally got messed up because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think the last one was in 2018, and so it's (laughs) been a while. Um, In 2018, we did go to Hungary for the club crew world championships and we entered uh two divisions we entered as breast cancer survivors and survivors of any cancers and we got um silver medals for the the um, breast cancer and gold medal for the um a gold and a silver for the um survivors of any cancer. That's amazing. That's wonderful. it was a total thrill. Mm -hmm. Most of the other teams were um, uh, extraordinarily competitive teams. So a lot of men, a lot of younger people. Mm -hmm. Um, There are even teams who are in high school and and, um, so on. We did have um, a team from a college team for a while Mm -hmm. called the Voyagers, and they were founded by some Cal poly students, um, unfortunately, they couldn't sustain when the lockdown uh, mm. came about, you know, with, right. with um, students are here only for a set number of years. And then when they weren't able to do the sport, it, it, um, 
they couldn't continue. But mm-hmm. maybe one day they'll come back. That would be great, yeah. especially with this wonderful competition that you're in. Congratulations on those yeah. medals right. that you brought back to the Central Coast. And how are you funded? Do you need people in the community to assist you? Well, yes, we, we're, we're always happy to accept donations. Um, we did have a fabulous um, donation drive for our bo- boats and were able to raise um, enough money to purchase two beautiful new boats. Um, but we always uh, need money for mm-hmm. extra things. And um, our, our fees usually cover the general operating expenses like rents and uh, insurances and things like that. But for special things, we need donations. And we have been able to offer um, paddling clinics um, every year, except, of course, during the lockdown, um, for, for, I think, Gosh, I can't even remember when it started, but it's been at least 10 years. We offer that where we have some a coach come in from another community, a professional coach, mm-hmm. and give us a day mm-hmm. of um, paddling and a paddling clinic and instruction. And in the last several years, except for, of course, the break during the pandemic, we've had two um, internationally known coaches uh, come separately to give us um a clinic and it's it's been very very helpful mm-hmm. we've gotten much much stronger and uh back in 2018 the one reason why we did not get a gold in in one of those was because our starts needed some work and so we worked on those and our starts are pretty darn good now <laughs> and uh in the last race festival we had uh, we won gold in both breast cancer survivor races division and um, the uh, all cancer race division, and it wasn't just winning; we won by more than a boat length. Wow, that's uh, great! Which is unheard of, mm. and and we were strong. Mm-hmm. You could just tell. And um, when you know, I raced in the breast cancer. Um, Division and I was a drummer in the um, all cancer survivors and uh, in one of the mixed races. But as a drummer sitting up there on the seat mm-hmm. watching the crew, you can just see how hard they're working mm. and that they're in sync. They're totally mm. in time with each other and all of the things um, that need to happen were happening and it was just beautiful. How long are the races? Well, they vary, and these races were um, 250 meters. Um, there are also 500-meter races, 1,000-meter, and 2,000 meters. That's amazing. So, Nikki, how can people find out more about the Central Coast Dragon Boat Association? They go to our website, which is ccdba.org, and... Um, Try not to get too lost in it. I mean, there's so much information, but there mm-hmm. is information about how to uh, sign up, how to how to register ahead of time as a guest, and to come down. And um, we can provide um, a paddle and a um, personal flotation device, um, at least at the beginning. And certainly, uh, we have a number of them, and people can use them. Most people. Once they register, try to buy their own. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so we can provide them with that and instruction mm-hmm. on on um, what the what the stroke is, what some of the techniques are, and often we will have a bench coach. We will um, pair them up with somebody who will sit next to them mm-hmm. and um, help them because one of the things that's very important is injury prevention, and we don't want anybody to injure themselves doing this. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful, and I urge all of you to go to that website. It's extremely informative, and you will also see how supportive these teams are to each other through the cancer or being supporters um, of people who have been diagnosed or had cancer in some way. So it's just a phenomenal organization that we are really fortunate to have here on the Central Coast. Yeah. Thank you. I, w- I was going to use the word phenomenal, too. It's yeah. a phenomenal experience. It, it really, really is. is. Thank you for joining us today. I have been speaking with Mickey Gilman. She is the board president of the Central Coast Dragon Boat Association. This is The Nonprofit Story. This is KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. You're listening to Issues and Ideas. KCBX music host Salas Banya talks with Suzanne Vega ahead of her appearance at the Lobero Theater in Santa Barbara. Hi, we are speaking with Suzanne Vega, who will be performing an intimate evening of songs and stories at the Lobero Theater September 28th. Hi, Suzanne. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Your recent live album is an evening of New York songs and stories. How will this new tour be different? The new tour will include songs that are not included on the album. I like to perform a lot of the songs that I know people know, songs like The Queen and the Soldier and Gypsy and just songs that I've been picked out from various parts of my career. So it's a little broader than just New York songs. And you will be accompanied by? Jerry Leonard on guitar, who my musical director and was also David Bowie's musical director. And he's a wonderful musician and guitarist. You have been working on a variety of projects over the past few years. I'd like to explore just a few of them, if that's okay. Sure. You re-recorded much of your early catalog for the Close-Up series. What was it like revisiting your early work? Oh, it was great. I mean, I do that all the time because when I tour, a lot of people know me for the first and second album. So I, I revisit it often anyway. But it was fun including some of the songs from my teenage years. Most of those are on the Volume 4 Songs of Family. That was fun. Yeah, so for the most part, uh, I didn't try to recreate what had been on the albums, but just tried to strip all the songs down to their bare bones. And I enjoyed it a lot. Now, was one of the reasons to kind of reinvest the copyrights on those? Did I read that correctly? Yeah, it's not the copyrights. It's the masters. Oh, the masters. Um, Okay. Yeah, that's the whole issue there is the record company, which is A&M Records, now UMG, they own the masters. Technically, after 35 years, the masters are supposed to revert to the artist. But there are some record labels that are not participating in this. Uh, It's very difficult to get a hold of your masters. You don't generate money on the level of, say, Bob Dylan or Bruce Springsteen or any of those other guys who have owned their masters. Most of us are bound by the contracts that we signed 35 years ago. So it's very unlikely that I will get those masters back but I wanted to own some physical version of my own work. And that's why I re-recorded the songs, because now I have my own recordings that I can license, I can stream them, and I get a source of income. Congratulations on that. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) 
At the completely different end of the spectrum, you hosted the radio program American Mavericks, which featured interviews with innovative 20th century composers. Was there one interview that was more challenging or more memorable? Because you interviewed and talked about just all the major, major artists of the 20th century. Yes, I really, really loved that project, I have to tell you. Now, here's the thing. I was the host of the the radio show by NPR. I didn't actually do the interviews myself. The interviews were done ahead of time, and so we they would cut and paste them into the show. So it wasn't as though I met them face-to-face and had to in- interview them myself. Therefore, it wasn't challenging to me because all I, I was basically reading the script and putting the whole thing together. But I really, really enjoyed that, that project. It was challenging, it was fun, and it was very popular. Yeah, I was curious because Wendy Carlos never does interviews. and I was just curious how you guys pulled that one off. That just surprised me to see her there. Yeah, the producer, Tom Vagley, was really terrific, and he really knew his stuff. He made it very easy for me to just come in and, and do my part. It just intellectually fascinating, but but also hit a really popular vein. I, I, I'd work with them again anytime. I assume you're a fan of 20th century music? Yeah, I went to the high school of performing arts as a dance major, and so I learned about modern music mostly by dancing to it. Uh, and I had friends in the music department and had attempted to study music many times uh, because I love music. That's where I learned about, about modern 20th century music was through the modern dance department. One of your recent albums that I actually loved was Tales from the Realm of the Queen of Pentacles. <laughs> Uh, Can you tell us how that album came about? Sure. That album has a sort of spiritual slant to it. I was thinking about and wrestling with things that are difficult to put into words and, in fact, things that are, well, difficult to write about. I write in many different ways. Sometimes I write factually or I write about real situations like Luca or like Tom Steiner. But that whole album is filled with a sense of spirituality and just trying to put into words things that one feels at a time in one's life. And so that's how those songs, that's the atmosphere in which those songs were written. We are talking with Suzanne Vega ahead of her September 28th performance at the Lobero Theater in Santa Barbara. You recently moved into a more theatrical direction. Uh, What inspired you to explore that? It was an old love. I had studied theater in college. I majored in English literature, but I minored in theater. I'm really fascinated by anything having to do with the stage and any form of artistic expression. So I was given the opportunity to revisit a play that I had written back then. And I just decided to take it as far as I could. Um, and And I did. And so I did two runs of the play. One was called Carson McCullers Talks About Love, and that ran, I think, in 2011 at the Rattlestick Theater, and then I had a, another version of the play called Lover Beloved, which opened in Houston, Texas in February of 2018. So now I feel I'm at the end of this project, and we decided to make a little film to commemorate that last version of the play. And so hopefully one day I'll get a distribution deal of some kind and people can actually see it. That's what I'm hoping for. It's a wonderful film, and what was it like to live as Carson McCullers? Well, (laughs) 
Um, it, it's a fascinating role, and uh, it, and it's very challenging because of the range. There are very dramatic parts of the play, and there are very funny parts of the play. She was very droll, and she had a, a really good wit and good sense of humor. But she was also a, a rather tragic figure. The real roller coaster ride for me to play all of those emotions and in the uh, one hour and fifteen minutes of the of the film, but it, always engaging, always challenging, and the the project has brought me so much pleasure. Uh, what were the major challenges adapting your stage show for the film? Oh, we had to cut a lot of it. I mean, I was fascinated by her and the original play play that I did in 2018 ran one hour and 45 minutes, which is a lot for just one person on the stage. So we had to cut half an hour out of it, and those cuts were hard. But I think it was the right thing to do. The other thing is that I, I never watched the dailies, and so I wasn't always aware of what I was doing. I think if I were to redo it again, I might have made different choices. But overall, I'm, I'm very happy with the film. The film, it seems to me, I, I got to see a screening of it. Uh, the film contains songs that are not on the original album that you released, An Evening with Carson McCullers. Were they additions written for the film, or were they just didn't make the cut on the album? They were written for the 2018 production of Lover Beloved. So they did not exist. The album came out in 2016, and this play had its debut in 2018. Uh, this has been a lifelong project for me, so I have a ton of songs that never made it onto the album. And then I have new ones also. Uh, will we ever be able to hear these fine new songs? Because I think there's one called Picnic that I just love absolutely. It's just great. Oh, wow. Uh, I think, oh, yes, yes, you're right. That did not, that's not on the 2016. Oh, I'm so glad. Um, because I own my own record label, Yay. there is very much of a chance that we could do a re-release of the Lover Beloved album with a bunch of bonus materials. There's no reason why that couldn't happen. Or we could also do a soundtrack of the film, which is also very likely. Once we get distribution for the film, we will probably have a soundtrack album for the film itself. I look forward to that, definitely. Will you include any of the songs in your performance at the Lobero Theater? Well, we could. We just finished a run through Europe, and we were sort of more concentrating more on the New York songs and stories. But if I, if I know there's interest, we can definitely do some of the songs from the film. Have you ever been to Santa Barbara before? Santa Barbara's a lovely town. I believe I have. I get certain images when I hear the name. So that makes me think, yes, I've been there before. But I could not tell you when or what year it was or what venue or, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. Maybe some of your listeners could let you know yeah. <laughs> if I've been there and when and where. Uh, what is the best way for people to find more information about you and your music? You can definitely go to my website, SuzanneVega.com slash tour, if you want to know about the tour. And the website is maintained really well. It's got pretty much everything up to date, so you can go there. Or you can seek me out on Facebook or Instagram. So what's next for Suzanne Vega? Here's another fun, interesting thing I'm doing this fall. In November, I'm going to Europe to be part of a European production of Einstein on the Beach by Philip Glass. Wonderful. Uh, yeah, it's really great. It's, it's sort of an abridged version of 
it's a five-hour version. It's only three and a half hours long, and I get to perform all of the narrative parts. It's it's sort of a cross between singing and speech, and I get to play like four different different roles, which is just great fun for me. I really love it. Oh, that sounds wonderful! And again, a new direction for you to do on stage. Yeah. Now, you uh, wrote two songs for Philip Glass's Songs from Liquid Days. Was that where you first met Philip Glass? Uh, yeah, I believe it is, actually. That was when I was in my mid-20s. You never rode in his taxi? No, no. <laughs> no, no. I went to his house with a sheaf of my lyrics, and he picked out uh, two of them. And, um, yes, that was the first time I met him. Okay. And what was it like working with him? It's wonderful working with Philip Glass. Uh, he is so funny, and he's so intelligent, and he's so artistically driven. Uh, I have a great respect for him and uh, great affection for for him and his body of work and his, his character. Um, if anyone gets a chance, you should read his autobiography. It's wonderful. It tells his story, and it really makes his work very accessible. I'd like to thank you for taking the time to speak with us, and we're looking forward to seeing you at the Lobero Theater September 28th. Thank you, Suzanne Vega. Thank you. The COVID years have been difficult for all of us, and I'm just looking forward to coming out and playing live music to real people. I'm having a great time these days. That was Suzanne Vega with KCBX music host Sal Espana. She'll be appearing at the Lobero Theater in Santa Barbara on Wednesday, September 28th. And you can join Sal Espana on KCBX's Beyond the Fringe. That's tomorrow night from 10 to 1 to hear more of the interview and some music from Suzanne Vega. It's harvest season for wine grapes on the Central Coast, an area with a unique climate and rich history of winemaking. In the first story in a series, we're calling In the Vines. KCBX's Benjamin Perper explores how the city of Paso Robles became the wine hub it is today. On a hot summer day in Paso Robles, Cindy Steindeck fires up an old, rusty Jeep. This is a 1958 Willis. Dad bought it in 1960. All of us kids grew up driving it here on the ranch, so. Cindy is the owner of Steinbeck Vineyards and Winery, one of the oldest in Paso Robles. She uses this Jeep to give educational tours on her ranch of not only the history of her family, but of Paso Robles and its wine roots as well. The Steinbeck family Jeep takes us on a dirt path through acres of vineyards, passing old sheds and other buildings the family has preserved over the years. The property is full of different types of grapes you'd find across Europe. Primarily Cabernet Sauvignon, and then we have Zin and Petite Syrah. As we drive, Steinbeck points out decades-old vines coexisting right alongside younger ones. Those are 38 years old. These are seven or eight years old here. But the ranch's history goes back much further than 38 years, all the way back to 1884, when the Steinbeck family settled here. She says there are news articles mentioning high-quality wines from the property as early as 1900. And UC Davis, in 1900 or 1901, wrote a paper saying that viticulture would be the primary crop in this area, and that's 1900. It's that history that led Libby Agrin, director of the Wine History Project of Slow County, to start co-writing a book about wine in this area. I've lived here 22 years, 
And I thought it was amazing that we had so many microclimates and that we grew so many different crops. It was this climate that led the area's Spanish explorers and settlers to plant crops here, from vegetables to cherry trees to grapes. They wrote to Spain and said, we need this and we need that. The next turning point in the Central Coast's wine history is the Prohibition era in the 1920s and 30s. Agrin says the nationwide ban on alcohol led winemakers across the country to simply walk away from the industry. But the story in Slow County is a little different. She says the Italian community in this area saw a business opportunity. They started planting vineyards, knowing that Italian Americans were in every major city in the U.S. and that they all made their own wine. Every year they just shipped all those grapes back east and people met the trains and they took the grapes off the trains and bought them. Paso Robles' current status as a wine destination started towards the end of the 20th century. The Paso Robles Wine Festival was founded in 1983. By the time the 1990s rolled in, the wine industry was firmly established in Paso Robles. More vineyards and wineries started popping up and the town began to transform. Agrin says restaurants and hotels cropped up together with grapes, and over the next few decades, Paso became the tourist town it is today. Some of our other areas don't really have the same structure to provide the wine culture and the hospitality that often comes along with the wines. That wine culture now dominates Paso Robles. The number of wineries has grown from less than 20 in the early 90s to more than 200 now. The city is now a destination for wine lovers. Back at the ranch, Cindy Steinbeck says her family has seen all of Paso Robles' modern wine history. Nowadays, Steinbeck says her family are still primarily great growers, but they also make wine and have a tasting room on the property. We're a large vineyard, but small winery, so... She says both are now important parts of the family business. She says her son manages the vineyards, while her son-in-law manages the Steinbeck wine brand. And that's a tremendous treasure because a lot of families may not have that next generation in place. The drive through the vineyards leads to the base of a steep hill on the ranch, one that the old Jeep is still spry enough to climb. It's going to get a little loud. i got to go up this hill, okay? The top of the hill provides a 360 view of the Paso Robles wine region. Steinbeck says that lets tour guests see for themselves how these rolling hills are so well suited to wine. We talk about the Santa Lucia mountain range and the way that that separates us from the coast and really gives us our daytime high, nighttime low temperatures. She says looking out over Paso Robles wine country helps guests connect to not only the area, but to grape growing and winemaking itself. And that way, guests can understand far more than just what's in a glass of wine, but rather, you know, what goes into producing that glass of wine. Of course, it's more than just climate or even grapes that goes into producing a glass of wine. In this series, we'll explore some of the benefits the wine industry has brought to this town, from jobs to tourism to international prestige. But we'll also dig into the negatives, from high housing costs to a critical water shortage. But to understand all of that, we'll first need to take a tour of some Paso Robles wineries of different sizes. That's next time on In the Vines. For KCBX, I'm Benjamin Perper. This story was produced with assistance from the Public Media Journalists Association Editor Corps, funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. And finally, the music department at UC Santa Barbara offers a course in carillon, an instrument consisting of 61 bells played from the top of Stork Tower in the center of campus. Contributor Beth Thornton met up with the university's carillonist to find out more.
That's the sound of the carillon emanating from Stork Tower at UC Santa Barbara. Wesley Arai recently played a Sunday concert that filled the campus air with classical Mozart and Bach, as well as more contemporary pieces. So a carillon is an instrument that consists of 23 or more bells. Um, they're bronze bells, and they're played um, by a person. So not by a computer. Um, you play with your hands and your fists, so it's kind of like an organ in that regard. Arai is an instructor in UCSB's music department. He's currently teaching four students to play the carillon. And the actual keyboard has uh, what we call batons for the hands. They look kind of like the ends of broomsticks jutting out towards you that you play with closed fists. And you also have a pedal board down below for your feet, so it's quite the workout. The course is offered through the music department, but he says most of his students come from science and engineering. I've had, I think, one student who is an English major, um, but by and large they're in the sciences, which is interesting. Arai was himself a math major and learned to play the carillon as a student at UC Berkeley. Um, I'm always told that there's some overlap in which side of the brain is used for music and, and the sciences, and I think some of the analytical ways of thinking help out in learning music. He is UCSB's designated carolinist. He teaches students one-on-one, -on -one, yet they rarely practice in the tower due to its proximity to the library. Um, we don't actually take lessons in the tower most of the time. We have a practice instrument that lives in the music building. Um, that's where the students can practice without bothering the neighbors. Arai says the students express a sense of awe when they do get the opportunity to play way up high in the tower for all of campus to hear. Yeah, we have 61 bells here. I think the biggest bell weighs two and a half tons, so 5,000 pounds. And in total, I believe it's about 18 tons worth of metal in the bells themselves. He says the time it takes to master the carillon varies due to practice time and past experience. It just depends on your musical background. Um, definitely if you have a background in piano, that translates pretty well to the carillon. To make our way to the top of Stork Tower, we took an old slow elevator that reaches the observation deck. We were met by a stunning view of the Channel Islands, the city, and the mountains. Oh, wow. It's pretty clear today. You can see the Channel Islands. It's a nice place to come here. to work. Yeah. We then climbed a few more stairs to reach the small cabin area where the carillon is located. The instrument has rows of wooden batons and wires that connect up and out to the surrounding bells. There's just enough room for a rise bench and a tabletop fan. So this is the, the keyboard. These batons are made of wood. And you're not quite gripping them, you're using a semi-closed fist and coming at them from above. Here, so softer sound or a louder sound um, based on how much force you're using. This wire translates to one of those wires that comes down on the right side outside of that bell. So as you press on one of these batons, it pulls an arm that pulls another wire that connects to what we call the clapper. And the clapper is a big hunk of metal that lives inside the bell. And as you pull, as you press one of these batons down and that arm pulls the wire with the clapper, it comes towards the side of the bell. So that clapper contacts the side of the bell, which is what makes a sound. And the harder, more force that you use to press the baton down, the more force the clapper uses when it hits the side of the bell, making a louder sound. According to UCSB's website, there are only six of these manually operated carillons in California, four of them in towers on college campuses, the others in cathedrals. If you're interested in hearing the carillon in action, Arise concerts are open to the public, and there's also a student performance this fall. We have a student recital at the end of every quarter, so that features just the students, um, so they 
each take turns playing. Sometimes they'll play duets with each other, which is fun. Check the UCSB Music Department website for more information. For KCBX, I'm Beth Thornton. You've been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org. Thank you.